0: Hi, I'm Marty Grusani, and this is The Marty Grusani Show. As a full-time real estate investor and business owner, I have a real fascination of finding the key principles for business success and personal development. This show is a reflection of my personal mission to find out what truly makes somebody successful in business and in life. We will find tools and tactics that they've used to reach those levels. If you're the type of person is not satisfied with average, and you have a hunger for learning that will never cease, this show is for you. Welcome to the show. here's here's what's crazy Mark is that you were maybe the first one of the first three podcasts I ever listened to because you were one of the OGs (laughs) on Bigger Pockets. so all right here's the deal with my show so many people ask the same freaking questions right when I did my research on you the last couple of days it's like the same things and I get it you got to let people know who you are and where you came from and all that stuff but Mangia. Guys, if you want to know about Mark Optograph, go back and listen to all the other podcasts. Right. I'm going to do something different. All right, guys. Nice. This is just what it is. Mark, Mark is he answers the same questions on all the other podcasts. And then before you know it, before we get to anything good, that's already over. So, anyways, just really quickly though, how did you find bigger pie pockets and how did you get on the show?
1: Damn, that's a good question. I it's been so long I don't even know. Um I think I just stumbled onto the website just doing stupid Google searches for real estate, right? And uh, found bigger pockets, got kind of involved in the community, but more as like uh, somebody that didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Sure. and asking lots of questions. and i I realized pretty quick there's like twenty guys on there that were just like real estate gurus from across the nation, you know, California, Oregon, Florida, the Sun Belt, you name it. They had guys there. And they were all taking time out of their day to answer my stupid questions from like, uh, you know, first time investor, I'm about to buy my first single family house. These guys are doing like apartment complexes. And I was just blown away. I was like, how does this exist? Right. There's no cost of entry. You just get in there, you get into the forum, you start asking questions and people just, you know, they pay it forward. It was freaking awesome.
0: It really was insane when I first found when I first found Bigger Pockets. It literally this was 2013, and I you don't hear about this stuff. You know, I got basically most of my information from Reddit, like all my finance and all my financial information, and from Reddit first. And then like after you did all the certain things on Reddit, right? Like I I was making money at as uh, a sales job, and I was like, okay, I'm maxing out my 401k, I'm doing an IRA, I'm doing all this other stuff. Okay. What's next? And then the last thing somebody wrote was real estate. And they go, where do you find the information on real estate? And they said, bigger pockets. And this was when the website was all like, wasn't so good. Yeah. And you know what I mean? This was like, I think right as Brandon Turner kind of got on and he was still a geek and he didn't really, you know, know much. Right. In those first mm-hmm. episodes, he had a couple of properties in Washington, right? Like, wow, yeah. this dude, he really stumbled into some really cool stuff. But, but I was really, your episode resonated with me. You're a Rochester guy. I was working at my sales job and I was hearing the story of like, yeah, I, you know, I'm a NASA guy, uh, science dude, rad scientist, had a cool job and I went to RIT, you know, was doing some cool stuff with like imagery with cameras and, 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 but still science. And I was able to scratch all my itches, but I just wasn't making a ton of money. Mm. And I was like, dude, that's me you know, and I was like, that feels like this is right up my alley. And, but then you go, I now I'm full-time real estate. And that's what blew my mind. I go, you can do this stuff full-time. So how did you go full-time? Like, I think a lot of people listening are kind of newer or like, I got a lot of people that, have, you know, maybe five, 10, 20 properties, but they still work that full-time job. Was it just, you got to jump in and a net will appear? How do you, how, what was your mindset and thought process when you did kind of jump into it?
1: I got licensed as a, a realtor, you know, first off, because I needed to subsidize that W2 income that I lost. Uh, so my rationale was like, Hey, now I can open the door myself. My agent was more interested in selling houses in the suburbs for, you know, 300 K than opening a door on a $50,000 dumper. In the inner city yeah. so i was like well i'll get my license i can open the doors and that was the time of the market when you could write an offer get it accepted and the agent would just lock it up for you and like switch it to pending. you know they're getting calls and they're like you better close this i got like 15 calls these other people want wow. it it's like i got this you got my proof of funds i'm going to close it there's no inspection it's going to be a done deal and so like just feeling the marketplace back then I knew that our window of opportunity was closing, that it wasn't going to last forever. And I actually remember going to my broker, I'd done some research and I'd figured out, oh, there's something called an escalation clause. And so I go to my broker and I ask him about the escalation clause. He's like, don't do it. Nobody does it. It's a bad idea. If you do it, you're basically showing your hand to the seller and then the seller can just counter you and they don't even have to use your escalation clause. Valid point, you know, and to, to today's market that might start coming in effect, right? Because now we're seeing things go past delayed. We're not getting the multiple offers that we used to get. And so if somebody goes and writes this escalation and they've got a top on it and you don't have anything to trigger that escalation, you know what their top is. And you could just reply, boom, yeah, sure. I'll sell it to you. I want it at the top of your escalation. So back then that was his concern. He's like, I wouldn't, he said, I would advise against it. And I said, you know what, thanks for your advice, but I'm going to do this my way. I started doing escalation clauses. Nobody else even knew what they were. I'd have to explain it to the other agent. Like, no, no, no. I'm going to beat the other offer by this margin. I'm going to pay cash. I'm not going to have an inspection. And, you know, sometimes it would work. And sometimes the agents were like, screw you. I'm not taking your escalation. Don't know what it is. Never heard of it. My broker's never heard of it. We're not participating. Pick a freaking number or get out of my face. And so that was kind of how things started when, when the window was closing and things were heating up. We went from an environment where early bird got the worm. You go in, you write a strong offer, boom, it's yours to like, okay, there's too much activity. Um, you know, we're going to like wait a little bit and then everybody, the, consumer had such a bad taste in their mouth from that because it's like, you think you have a deal and they're waiting a little bit and they're getting better offers. That's where as an industry, we went to this like delayed negotiations across the board. And everybody's like, all right, we're going to do delayed negotiations. That way everybody gets a fair shake and somebody can't just come in and lock up this thing day one on market when there's other people that haven't had time to look at it and formulate their offer, et cetera. And so during that process, uh, during that time period, I was just like trying to gobble up as much stuff as I could because I knew that like it was going to end.
0: And it's ending now. It's ending now within regards to, I mean, case in point, I got a property, just went past delayed negotiations and it's beautiful. You know, Victor, schools, four beds, Farmington, all the great things you want. So it's getting weird. It's getting Mm -hmm. weird. Like, what do you think? Like, do you think that maybe it's just the, the sellers or I'm sorry, the buyers are now been trained to wait to go past or to look for no. problems that are going past late. What do you think that is? Is it, just, or is it just,
1: It's kind of a, you know, it's a sentiment. So they say 20% of the agents do 80% of the volume. That's totally true. And so for me as a professional, that's representing somebody else, I just intuitively know what's going on in the marketplace. I feel it because I'm in it. And so I'm going to strategize based on the feedback that I'm getting from that particular listing, the vibe that I'm getting, if you will. Uh, So I agree with you. I think we're in this kind of weird time in the marketplace you know, obviously Rochester cyclical, when we get back to the spring, it's probably going to be, you know, dozen, two dozen offers on properties. Uh, now we're going into the fall and we're earlier than we usually are. You know, typically our sales are pretty strong through August, through September. And then they start to tail off in like November. Uh, but this year I agree with you. I think like something is off in that we're starting to slow down sooner. And if you look at the year over a year volume, our volume is pretty compressed compared to 2022, so it's not surprising that this is happening either.
0: Okay. Well, that's good to hear. I, I do think that, I think quality will win no matter what. So that's, you know, again, and, and guys, for those who don't know Mark, he's got, he manages 500 plus properties, owns hundred plus properties. he has been doing this since 2008. So he knows these markets and these cycles where a lot of newer people have only been, it's price go up. Up only, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, that, and that's uh, you know that's not going to always be the case. And you really got to know your markets. I thought it was really interesting listening to, uh, you know, what you've been saying and, and a lot. You know, you have so much content out there. It's it's actually pretty crazy, uh, even just in you know writing form content. Let alone your podcasts. But you've been able to really, I think you you're a pioneer. I really truly believe this in finding markets that are about to appreciate you know you're 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 really good at finding hey i think this is going to be that next you know hot spot first of all how do you find that for the for the people that are like i i can't compete in the park Ave area i can't compete in the south wedge anymore where that's where i think you won back mm-hmm. in 2008 2009 2010 um and and so and today even you you have those you know uh your ear to the ground in those in those markets but what can somebody who wants to find appreciation do to maybe find that next market? Or is that debt? Is that gone now?
1: No, it, it, it repeats over and over and over again. You just need to know what you're looking for. And it's really simple, honestly. So, you know, you want to track your price per foot. You want to look at your gross rent multipliers. Uh, but I think the key to the whole puzzle is going into your MSA and breaking it down into segments, And, you know, you got to know the streets, drive around a little bit. Arterials are going to typically be borders of some of these smaller segments. In Rochester, you know, I've got it broken up into probably 50 to 100 different small segments. And then inside of that segment, I'm going to give it an average price per foot. I'm going to give it an average GRM. And that way, when I look at a property in one of those segments, I can quickly see if it is undervalued or overvalued, right? So I can say, okay, on average, we're at 100 a foot in this little tiny area. This one's selling for 60 a foot. Okay, let's jump on that. Or this one's listed for 120 foot. That's not really a good deal. So you can easily uh, weed out the stuff. But as far as like finding the next marketplace... I like to look at the first-time home buyer just because they're FHA, they've got a small deposit, they're still able to close a deal, and they are going to buy something, but when they go into a market, like you're talking about Park Ave, South Wedge, whatever, they can't win because there's too many conventional offers with big deposits or cash offers uh, with no inspection. So even if they take out their inspection, they still don't have a chance, right? So they'll go into those markets, they'll lose, they'll lose, they'll lose, and then when they have a realtor that knows what they're doing, they'll say, look, we're spinning our tires over here. I can't get you something in this neighborhood. There's, you know, there's too many offers. There's 12 offers on every single property. You know, maybe we'll get that one off, but like in the meantime, we're not gonna give up on the market. Sure, we'll keep looking in it, um, but we'll, we'll also start exploring other areas. And, you know, they can't go up in price per foot. They can only go down in price per foot because they're typically shopping at the top of their budget. And so as we get into these less uh, expensive markets, They tend to gravitate towards the ones that are the best as far as, you know, uh, location schools, you know, in in our city, it's all city schools, so that's not as relevant, but walkability, crime, and then your proximity to some of the hot spots, right? So right now we've got the North Wynton Village trending, we've got the merchants area trending. Uh, So we've got a lot of conventional buyers over there that keeps the prices up really high, full market value. And so these guys are just like, Oh, I'll just buy on the border of that. You know, I can cross Culver and I got a house on the uh, East side of Culver that's selling for 150 to 200 a foot. As soon as I cross that road, I'm at like 60 to hundred a foot. It's a huge disparity. They're like, I can just buy right, right there. I can literally see the house, traded for 50% more from my front yard. And uh, as they do that, the flippers are like, okay, you know, back in, in, uh, when I started in Rochester, if you made five to like 15 grand on a flip, you were considered pretty savvy. You had good crews of guys that could get in and get stuff done on the cheap, and you could make a, a little bit of profit. And then you fast forward to this market where the prices have exploded. And you can still buy distressed stock you've got everybody flipping properties they don't know what they're doing sometimes and there's such a huge profit margin that it's become really in vogue to like be a flipper and so all these people will come into that marketplace and they'll start turning that product that's trading for 60 to 100 and then reselling it using the comps from across the street back up closer to that 150 to 200 a foot i mean even if they hit 120 a foot if they bought it for 60 a foot they put like 20 30 a foot into it they're making a, a killing
0: yeah it's uh, it's wild because i know talking to some of the uh the ogs in rochester that you know there wasn't really a thing like flipping wasn't a really a thing in 2009 you know 2008 2009 2010 it was like you were saying yeah five ten thousand but you know that's nothing to
1: it's, it's not look, worth your it's time fine.
0: it's yeah. not really worth your time like it is now, let me ask you this, you know, what do you think are some areas that are a little bit under the radar that you are bullish on, if you're willing to share that maybe one or two Yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm an open book. So, you know, Homestead Heights is going to pop 20 to 30% in the next three to five years. Now, if you get on the West side of that, it's going to take a lot longer, but if you stay from like, um, if you're looking at it, it's a big rectangle, right. And if you only go the, East 50%. That's what I'm talking about. So, like the East 50% of Homestead Heights has got nowhere to go but up. The only downside on that neighborhood is that there's not much multifamily. It's predominantly single family. Uh, but if you're a flipper or if you're a buy and hold guy that doesn't mind picking up singles, you can still cash flow it, right? You get into that market, maybe you get a distressed sale. You know, I bought four over there last year for. Uh, under a hundred grand each, right? And it's still kind of expensive for a single, but if you look at today's rents, you know, we're getting 1600 on, on a three bed in that neighborhood, it's still cash flows. And, you know, and then when I go to refi back out of it, you know, my valuation will probably come in. We've got comps over there that are up to like 250. And yeah. even if the bank is super conservative, you know, I'll probably still hit a buck 75 on these things that I picked up for a hundred. And so I've got all my equity back if I want to take it. I could probably take a little bit more if I want to uh, sacrifice that cash flow. Uh, so, yeah, I would say Homestead Heights is a no-brainer. And anything over there, and then as you get into Irondequoit, you know, the Irondequoit's been doing really well, so I'd be flipping in Irondequoit as well. Really, anything that you could get in today's market seems to be fine. I mean, I've seen people flipping stuff on Lexington, where they buy it for 20 and then sell it for 100 and they, you know, did, they did the lipstick on a pig. I think I, think I saw, saw the
0: same one. I saw that yeah. same one back in the day, not not too long ago. Yeah, I, I really agree with you. I think uh, we just picked up something near Baycliffe. Uh, I know Wintroth just went bananas on a couple of comps I just saw. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think if you can stay in that little pocket, uh, again, it's still going to be city schools. But the appreciation and the comps you can find are just they're just stupid i mean it, it's so but again this is where it gets a little dicey though i don't know what what the banks are going to start doing when they start tightening up on what they're going to be given i'm not going to go too further down i'm not i'm an optimist so we'll we will have mm. to we'll just have to see how this plays out question for you so here's something i, I wanted your opinion on this well, I'm talking to a bunch of brokers, right? Now, in your previous podcast, I've heard that you have a really nice system down with your follow-up, right? In your CRM. Mm-hmm. Does it boggle your mind that there's a good, good majority of realtors who have no CRM system at all? And I mean, yeah. and, and and no follow-up system at all? Do you just kind of go and, like, this is, this, is, this is too easy. Like I'm going to, I can, if I wanted to, I could go crazy.
1: Yeah. It's typically because they're, I've trained so many agents. I would tell you, like they want to be spoon fed. They want to come into an organization that's going to hand them a lead. They're going to close the lead. They're going to make some money and that's all they want to think about. So they don't really have the mentality of this is my business and I need to focus on my business, right? They're not paying for the lead to begin with. I think if you come into this as somebody that's like actually paying your own money to get these leads, you know that if you don't convert it to a sale, you're going to go out of business, right? So from my perspective, I started, I nobody spoon fed me. I didn't go on a team. I didn't, I didn't even know what a lead was. And so that when I first started shelling out my cash to receive these leads, it didn't matter what time the lead came in. It didn't matter what day of the week. It didn't matter what I was doing. If I was with my family, if I was on vacation, it did not matter. I was still going to try to monetize the lead. And these guys just, they don't don't care. You know, I'll I'll be, I'll be frank with you. They just, they're getting stuff from their brokers and their brokers are like, the brokers don't have the trackability either. They think they do, but really they need a strong manager. The people that I see doing the best are the teams that have a really strong manager. You know, the team head is usually like, kind of like the figurehead. He started it. He got really good at sales. He's got a lot of really nice legacy uh, clients that are probably buying some higher end stuff. And so he's kind of on autopilot. Then he's got a real strong manager, and then that manager is going to take the leads in, and he's going to keep accountability on those agents that are taking the leads, and he's going to give the best leads to the agents that are the most accountable, that have the most follow-through, that have some kind of CRM, that they're able to like track it and not only monetize it once, but get the referral and then get the repeat business as well.
0: Yeah, so you know what you just said sounds like work. Yeah. Right. Like that, that's the difference. But that is so good to hear for those listening, like the opportunity that you can have if you treat the business as like a franchise, right? Like this is my franchise. This is my business. Like this is my baby that if you nurture and you got to have a CRM, my Lord, you got to have a CRM. I just, I couldn't believe I got the phone with some people that don't have any, buyer's lists. Like they don't even have like a buyer's pool of people that when they find something, they can just quickly go and get a deal. And I'm really talking more of like on the commercial side. Um, Mm -hmm. And that actually makes me think of another question I wanted to ask you is when you look at what the commercial brokers and uh, because I know you buy commercial wise and, and, and manage. Number one, are you doing any marketing to those deals like for off market type uh, approach. And then two, why aren't more commercial brokers doing like, why, why don't they have an off market strategy? Like, why don't these bigger businesses that are commercial buyers have an off market strategy? Like, or is it because they have brokers in house that are supposed to be cold calling? And maybe they are, I'm not sure. But what, what are your thoughts on those two things?
1: I think once you get into like the the bigger unit counts, a lot of them they have relationships and they only need to make a couple calls. They know who's going to buy it. A lot of times, like I feel like as uh, somebody that's kind of come up through from the beginning of buying my first single family house and, and wanting to break into that multifamily, that I'm at a disadvantage because they want to give it to their friends, and mm. you know, so I've seen deals where you know, I'll set up an appointment, the uh, commercial broker will like cancel it the day that I'm supposed to walk it. And then when I try to reschedule it, he's like, sorry, it's under contract. But that's happened to me more than one time uh, in the commercial world. So I, I feel like Rochester is a little bit of a good old boys club. Yeah. Um, I think the first part of the question was, um, what do we do? So we do direct call. So um, I'm a big proponent of cold calling trying to make them warm calls if you can, if you got any reason whatsoever to be calling that person. And, you know, given the volume that we do and the properties that we manage, I can typically make it a warm call versus a cold call Mm. simply by saying, hey, you know, we manage the property uh, three blocks away or, or two doors down or whatever, or hey, I just bought one next door to you. Or hey, one of my clients just bought one over here next to you. So I want to have that like uh, real close proximity relationship where I can say, yeah, you're on this street, and they, we actually did one three doors down at the. And so they know the property; they know I'm not full of shit, and um, then they'll start talking to me. That's that's pretty much it. You know, cold calls, yeah, so, warm calls.
0: So for people listening, right? So real simple. Hey, I just bought a house on one, two, three main street, right across from yours. I was just curious if you ever be open to an offer on yours, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's right. It's pretty, it's, it's right there for you. You can just, you have to have something, you have to have some sort of hook into a rapport building verbiage yeah. of sort, right? You, you kind of need something to to bring that person closer together with you. And I, I think that's a really good way of doing it. Um, yeah. But I'll give but you, no, I'll give you my hat. Yeah, go ahead. Well, go, go. So
1: I, I did this on Whitney's podcast the other day and, and I think it's really served me well. When I call somebody, I say, Hey, this is Mark Uptergraph. How are you? You know, typically they say Mark who, right? Like they don't know me or whatever, but I'm not saying, Hey, this is Mark Uptergraph from Uptograph Group Realty. So like number one, they're thinking that they know me. Right. And so that first uh, Put some kind of off their guard, and then I can kind of pivot into what you just said. Like, hey, I bought one, two, three ABC Street. But ultimately, what I want to do is just get them to talk. And right, yeah. people love to talk, unless they think you're a salesperson. Then they just want to get you right. off the phone. Right. So the the trick is to get on the phone like their friend and just start rapping with them. And then you know uh, also know what other things that you could not necessarily sell, but let them buy, right? So when I'm converting a call, if they're just like, nope, I'm not gonna sell, the next thing I'm gonna ask them is like, okay, well, are you buying? Because like, dude, I call all kinds of people. I go to the steps. I work with wholesalers. I got deals for days. Like, what are you looking for? What's your buy box, right? So now I'm getting their buy box. They're starting to talk to me. They're starting to open up a little bit. And then uh, we can get into the weeds from there, depending on where they take the conversation. You know, like I could sell a roof, I could sell gutter, I could sell whatever. You know, I got enough vendors that we do tons of business with that I can get better pricing, still put a small markup on it, you know, 5% for my trouble to orchestrate it and everybody's happy. And what that does is it helps build that relationship. So when they are ready to sell or when they are ready to buy, they're already talking to you because you just helped them with their gutters or you just helped them with their roof or you just helped them with whatever. So finding those small wins to keep in contact and to stay top of mind with those people is huge.
0: So I wanted to ask you this. You do a ton, right? There's so many different things you guys do. You have your brokerage, you have management. And by the way, so with management that's just easy money right just management in general is just it's easy easy cash
1: Nothing ah. could be further from the truth yeah
0: right So so here's my question And people listening where they're like should I start a management company I got a couple properties should I? So right from the bat people got a couple properties should they start a management company
1: Absolutely. I mean, it depends on what their end goal is. Like when I started the management company, I wanted to be able to control my assets. I didn't really trust the people that I interviewed in my marketplace to, to run my units. I thought they were going to devalue them, get crappy tenants the whole nine. So I was kind of forced into doing it, but I knew by running the pro forma that I was going to be subsidizing that company for a number of years until I hit that critical mass of units. And it's going to depend on, you know, your ability to get yourself up to that critical mass. I tell people in our marketplace, you know, we've got with our expense, I think every marketplace is a little bit different. So this unit count might not translate to like Phoenix or or Florida, but it might be similar. I say like 150 minimally is how many units you need to be able to run an effective company, have enough revenue coming in that you can have the payroll going out to be able to take care of it. Otherwise you just bought yourself the worst job on the planet. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's so bad it's so bad and i mean i'm just we manage our own and it's uh and here's what my question my second part was this was because that's not really a revenue generating activity of just kind of like that's more defense right not offense so so like that's what i'm trying to like in my brain is say to myself all right you kind of just got to scale that to either hire somebody, right. Or have enough where you can maybe have a third party. And then it, and Oh, by the way, it's nice that you already know how managing goes so that you appreciate your manager. Right. I always Mm -hmm. think you should at least own it for at least a year or whatever you buy so that you now understand why you're, you're paying the manager what they're supposed to be being paid. Right. Mm -hmm. But do you think also at the same time that, like for you, like what I'm I'm trying to get sold away from doing it. Like it's kind of stopping me from doing the more buying and growing the business side. Like, I know you guys do like construction company and you have contractors. Like, is that, was that necessary? Was that like a really good revenue generating business for you? Or was that something where it was like, well, we did it. Probably wouldn't do it again, but it is paying the bills.
1: Uh, we do it for kind of the same reason we did the property management. That's a controller own destiny. A lot of times when you deal with s- contractors, you know, you're subject to their availability. So if they all of a sudden land a big fish client and they're doing a huge renovation project and they're getting paid buku bucks, you're not going to see them. They're not going to do your work. So it was really hard to find consistency as and quality, right? Because, you know, they got to have workers comp. They got to have general liability. Um, And whenever you're hiring a subcontractor that has all those mandates on them, they're not, they're not, you know, working for Craigslist pricing. They're not working for Facebook pricing. They can't because they got all that overhead. So you're paying a premium. Um, So we did it because we knew that they were putting markup on their hours in addition to the, you know, the workers comp, the general liability. And so we can control our pricing a little bit by having those people on payroll. And then we can put out fires when we need to. Right so we're running a job the job's like a 2 month job or whatever if we got some emergency we can grab a couple guys send them over to the emergency put out the fire and then bring them back to the project that they're working on and it really hasn't affected that project.
0: Okay. All right that's fair. I like it. I like it. Now let's go pivot quick to you know your background in science and technology where are? Do you see anything that like? Are you messing around with AI or ChatGPT and, and how to get more leads or how to just maybe run your business maybe more efficiently? Or is that not something you've messed around with?
1: Yeah, this year, you know, as the market has been, it's given me more time to invest in technology, time specifically, but also monetarily. So yeah, I've got professional subscription for ChatGPT. I've got Midjourney. Um, And I've, I hired a marketing person full-time, which I never really had a full-time marketing person. I had a part-time marketing person from time to time, kind of off and on. And I've hired third-party companies for marketing, which is kind of like meh results. You know, they're like doing it for a bunch of other companies. So it makes you look relevant and people see you, but it's not really as catered to your personal vision as it should be when you have somebody that's full-time. So. Uh, Yeah, we're using all those technologies, you know, I want to know how they use them. So when I'm working with my marketing person, you know, I can talk to her about how she's implementing the technology. And uh, she could kind of stay on the forefront as well and kind of bring new products to my attention. Uh, So yeah, we're we're definitely using that. And I'm, I'm working on more organic lead flow. today than I was when I first started. You know, when I first started, I wasn't from Rochester. I I was in my mid-20s, so I felt like it was going to be hard to, like, have any kind of, like, notoriety, if you will, like, who's going to hire a young guy to do real estate? And so I just, I paid money for leads. I just straight up bought the leads. And now that I've been doing this for 15 years and I've got a good track record, I got tons of good reviews, now we're focused on the organic organic approach and we're picking one channel right? And so instead of trying to mm. like put everything out on all these 15 different social media platforms, we're going to track one channel really, really carefully. And then, um, you know, maybe next year we'll do two channels, see how they perform. And then we'll, we'll just kind of, uh, earmark dollars and time based on the results that we're getting. But I tell you, LinkedIn's doing really well. I've had, you know, probably 20 to 30 organic leads coming through just based on what I'm producing on my feed and my content. Um, you know, I've monetized a few of them. The other twenty five, I plan on monetizing. When I say like I get a lead that's solid, it's probably going to lead to some revenue at some point. Uh, but I'm in it for the long haul, so I've had leads that take you know years to to monetize. But I'm okay with that. I'm a, a relationship guy. I'm building a business. I like I like people. So it's kind of like you know you've got these really great friendships with a lot of different people that cross your paths. And if you treat it like that, it's not like work, right? You're just you're having fun and you're talking to people and you're trying to help them.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. I think people, when they first start out, they go crazy and they go, okay, I'm going to do Google ads. And then I'm going to do a uh, Facebook ads and I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to hire some cold callers. And then, and then you just, you, you just blow that whole thing up because you're not focusing on maybe one or two things. You know, our strong suit was cold calling because that's what we did at our previous sales job. So we were, we're really good at it. And we knew CRM systems because that's what we had for our, uh, for our, for our old sales job. And so it was like, wow, no one's really doing this. And, uh, and now a lot of people are, but you just got to be better. Right. And and you got to right. figure out ways of, of elevating. And I think we all need to figure out a way to elevate, especially in, in this market. Um, well, let's get to the speed round. I, I mean, I really would like to talk more with you. I, um, I, I, we have a, we have a lot we could talk about. Like, I know Mm -hmm. you're moving into, I know you're, you've all you've been in commercial, but I know you're making a, a bigger leap into, you know, buying commercial and multifamily. And that's a long game, right? That's just, it's just a long game. You're not doing any like mailers for that. You're just strictly just working the leads you have working the people that, you know, but nothing really like, Are you cold calling multifamily like in in this area? Is that part of what you do too?
1: Yeah, I'm training guys on cold calling. And, you know, as part of that, I don't charge people for mentorship. So I get, I get a lot of young guys that come to me and they're like, Hey, I want to quit my job. I want to be in real estate. And so I start training them on the cold calling side of things. I kind of teach them the methodology that I talked about a little bit earlier. Um, get them into it. I listen, like we do it in a room together so I can give them feedback. I can hear them. They can hear me do it. And uh, ultimately what I'm trying to do is get them, empower them that when they do find a deal that they can bring it to me and then I can help them sort it out. Right. It's because Mm. they're new. So that's been my philosophy for the last five years. It's been pretty good. You know, when you help somebody else, they're going to be willing to, you know, bring you those deals first. And even if, even if I can't make any money on it, I can still help them make money on it some way, you know?
0: Well, you'll sift. That's a great way of sifting through people who really are, are about it or not. Right. Mm-hmm. Hey, Marty. Hey, Mark, I really want to do this. And I, I, I Hey, I'm I'm ready to go. I'm really ready to, to do it. Okay, cool. This is what it is, by the way. So yeah, here's a list of people. You got to call them and see if they'd be interested in potentially selling. And right away they go, you know what I think? I think I'm good. I think I'm all set. Uh, maybe this isn't for me, right? or right. or this at least side of it is not for me. I, you know yeah. that's it's, it's kind of interesting that you you had to kind of do that because my thought process is, you know you're an analytical guy, right? and And I only say that because of your background with like technology and math and maybe you're not analytical. Um, but I mean just talking with you with the gross rent multiplier and and your performance stuff, that's something that gives you energy, it sounds like. You know, a lot of people that are that type of person have a lot of analysis paralysis and they don't take the aggressive stance of going in and making an offer or, you know, picking up the phone. Do you think you have that? Because number one, you kind of needed to in order to break through in the industry. And two, you the background of your family having like that entrepreneurship, your father being an entrepreneur and kind of seeing like, you know, you kill what you, you know, you, you eat what you kill. Like, do you think that had something to do with it?
1: Well, my dad is pretty introverted. And so he's formed his business based on good service. So his whole mantra is like, I'm going to provide awesome service. I'm going to shake your hand. I'm going to do exactly what I told you I'm going to do when I'm going to do it. And he's gotten lots of repeat business that way. And he's built his business slow and steady that way. Uh, In real estate, that's probably not the best way to go, right? The ocean's too big to have that approach. Um, So I would say Uh, I kind of forget what the beginning part of the question was. Hit me again with that. I was just
0: just talking in circles, basically, other than I was saying, I feel like the engineering analytical people have a lot of analysis paralysis Mm. and they don't all the time, you know, quite often they're afraid to pull the trigger. And I know you have that, not analysis paralysis, but you're analytical. I was just wondering why you're different than a lot of these other guys other than you had that maybe entrepreneurship background, and like, why do why do you have urgency? Is really the question. Like, what is it that makes yeah. you urgent?
1: I think you know, doing the sales side of things, jumping in as a realtor. That I know, I still had obligations to my family to bring home money, and I had to make some sales. Um, so having that sales background, where you're out of your comfort zone, um, I was never like salesy but I knew that I had to perform. So I had to make appointments. I had to show houses and I had to educate people enough to the point where they were ready to pull the trigger and being a 25 year old guy, not from this area with no background in real estate kind of just like forced me to be more extroverted and willing to talk to people and to make moves Uh, So, you know, if you look at the the first deal I did, I bought before I had my real estate license. And so that was kind of like the aha moment where I was like, okay, I can do this. I just have to follow this model. Very analytical. We can't spend too much. We got to be conservative on our rents. We have to account for swings in the marketplace. You're not always going to get 1200 in rent. Maybe you're only going to get 900, but maybe you'll get 1200. So we're going to underwrite to 900. And then just kind of following that plan gave me the confidence that if I was conservative in my underwriting, that I really couldn't go wrong. And then on the, like in being in the forefront and making deals and, and forming relationships and bird dogging and doing all that stuff that was kind of from my sales side, right? Because I knew in sales, you got to make that happen. You got to get out there. You got to talk to people. You got to get the phone ringing. uh, You got to network. You got to tell people what you're up to. So I just think those two things combined have just propelled me forward. And instead of sticking with singles, you know, you can only make so much on a single family uh, as a rental, and then you can make four times as much maybe on a four family. And then as you get into the higher unit counts, you know, it's economies of scale. So I've always naturally kind of wanted to progress into that direction.
0: Yeah. So that, my takeaway was sales. Like that's where you get urgency from. And I think Mm -hmm. for anybody who is thinking about, you know, maybe going into sales, go into sales, you're going to be better at any other job because of it. You're going to have a a better communication skills. You're going to have more. I just believe you're going to, you're going to go, okay, I need, I'm in control of my own destiny. And if you're that type of person who wants to be in control of their own destiny, then sales is the absolute best career that you can do. And then you're just going to be so much better setting appointments, all those things in real estate, especially realtors and where it blows my mind, where these, you know, some of them are just whimsically going about their day, waiting for a lead or a a showing or an appointment. It just, it doesn't happen. You got to go out and get it. All right. So let's get to the speed round. We haven't done this in a while, but mm. I need to get back to it. So let's get to it. If there's one metric you could track in your business, what do you choose? I mean, I guess it's gotta be cash flow, right? Cash flow is king. For me. Cash yeah. flows king. What book do you recommend? Or maybe what's the most recent book you're reading currently on business or real estate?
1: I'm reading Traction right now. It's really good. I just finished uh, Who Not How. That was also a good mind shift. I'm surprised I didn't read it sooner. Uh, if you want something that's not like business oriented, The Fountainhead is really good. It's, it, um, I don't know if you've read it, but the main character is an architect and he's like one that's kind of like looked down upon by the community, but he builds like the most awesome buildings and it's kind of his story of how he comes up through it. And there's like five or six other main characters. It's a really great book.
0: All right, thank you. I Haven't heard that one. I like that. I love who not how. Love who not how. It changed my mm-hmm. life. What do you do intentionally to network, or You know, or do you, are you a part of masterminds? Like, what do you mm-hmm. do to network with business folks?
1: Yeah, so I finally came up for air after just like ten years in the trenches, and this year specifically, you know, I joined the chamber of commerce. I've been going to all their business made social events, which has been huge. I've met, you know, at least a hundred plus people. I've volunteered for a few different things that they do to just get me even more rooted into their organization. Uh, We've got some other networking type things in Rochester. You know, I'm a realtor. so I'm part of like the, the young professional realtors network, even, you know, there's no age restriction. So they, they let old people in as well, even though it's called (laughs) the young realtors network. Uh, I am in a masterminds. So I joined one back in January. Uh, it's been going pretty good. I'm glad that I did that. So I've attended a few conferences. I think conferences are worth their weight in gold, right? Even if you pay a couple grand to go to the conference, the amount of connections that you're going to get, and not only just connections in general, but like specific targeted connections towards what you're trying to learn and what you're trying to achieve. So if you go to a conference that focuses on that, the people that are there. You know, even if it's kind of a broad topic, you'll be able to find people that have a similar trajectory that are maybe a couple steps ahead of you, and you could pick their brain. You can become friends with them, and then you can ask them questions when you've got those tough questions that you don't know how to answer. So I agree. Definitely.
0: I 100. If if there's a conference and you're like, I don't know about the money, buy it, put it on a credit card, figure it out, because you'll meet that one person who will honestly could change your life i mean i met through my one i joined a mastermind pulled the trigger and then started a podcast he told me about this other conference which got us into commercial and which has been dynamite but you got to take a leap of faith if you know like they all say the best investment is in yourself and if you're not willing to do that i don't have to tell you um last question if you lost at all mark what would you do? Would you go back to real estate or would you do something else? I mean, if you lost it all, what would, what would you do?
1: Oh, absolutely. Real estate. I mean, once you know the power of real estate, there's no going back. So if I lost it all, it would be market specific, right? So it depends on when I lost it all, but if I lost it all today, I'd be focused on saving up enough capital to do a flip because there's been no other time that I've been in real estate where you could make the amount of profit on a flip that you can make today. And I would take that profit, and I put it into passive investing.
0: That's it, folks. That's mark up the graph. I mean, that is exactly what you know I would tell people to do is absolutely look at flipping, but I would have a mentor first. Now he was saying, you know, if you were starting back from nothing, but he he still has all his information in his brain, mm. right? Yeah, if you don't have that information in your brain, I would probably do exactly what Mark did. Get my license learn, learn the markets, driving for dollars, and then work with a mark and shoot them deals. And then say, Hey, instead of me taking an assignment fee, can I just follow you and uh, walk the property with you? He might still give you some cash, but he'd be like, listen, I'll, I'll, you can walk this. You can see what I'm doing. You can see all the contractors. It's invaluable stuff, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. I appreciate you.
1: Yeah, Marty. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun.
0: Um, if people are looking for information on management, if they want mm-hmm. to talk to you about, um, hey, I got some money I want to put into a deal, uh, or if they're just interested in it all and what you got to say, where can they find you?
1: My cell is 585-314-9790, 585-314-9790. They can go to optograph.info to get more information on all the various companies and uh, we are launching a fund for distressed uh, foreclosure properties too. So if they want to get into that, feel free to, hook, to reach out.
0: That's it, folks. Mark, thanks for coming on, brother. I will see you soon, my friend.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Marty.
0: Take care, guys. Thank you for tuning into the Marty Grisani Show. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, leave us an honest rating and review. If you're on Spotify, make sure you follow us for weekly episodes.